You are now listening to the February 3rd broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour we have Christianese 101, Grace Upon Grace, and The Sex Spiral. We will listen to a praise song and begin our program with Christianese 101.
Hello, everyone. My name is Don Chung, and I'm your host for the Christianese 101 program. Have you heard of the worship song Maranatha? I remember singing it a couple of times at an assembly and during service at church. There is a stanza that goes like this Let's prepare the way for the Lord who will come back. We will go to the ends of the earth by glory of the heaven. We will welcome him at the ends of the earth. When I first sang this song, I wondered what the word Maranatha meant, but as I was singing along, I had a feeling it could mean Jesus come. Maranatha is a word that is not translated into other languages, just like Amen and Hallelujah. Maranatha comes from two Aramic words, Marana and Atha, which means our Lord, come. Jesus, who prophesied everything in the Bible, promised he would return to us. The church members who heard this promise joyfully shouted, Amen and Maranatha. Maranatha can also be known as Jesus, come. People who are saved by Jesus know that their hope is no longer on earth. Rather than living on earth filled with sin and injustice, they look forward to going up to heaven filled with God's grace and justice. Members of the early church received many persecutions while living on this earth. Therefore, their hope was in Jesus to come and save them from their trials and sufferings. They greeted each other with Maranatha to remember the promise of his second coming. They even used Maranatha officially as a prayer during Christmas service. Sadly, it has become an unfamiliar word in this current generation. It worries me that this could reflect the faith of Christians who don't yearn for the return of Jesus. The number of Christians in this generation waiting for Jesus' second coming is decreasing constantly. It has become a generation where we don't teach or give sermons regarding the second coming. How about you? Are you waiting for his return more than anything? If you are, are you prepared to meet him? The faith that God wants is to love him with all our heart, mind, and strength and patiently wait for the Lord. He who testifies to these things say, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Revelation chapter 22, verse 20. Have a blessed week and joyfully wait for his return. Maranatha.
Coming up next is a podcast series, The Sex Spiral, led by Pastor Dustin Daniels of Purity Ministry from Phoenix, Arizona. The program addresses sex with biblical grace and truth, without the shock value, and is a resource for anyone looking for biblical answers to pornography, singleness, marriage, family, and children. This program may contain mature language and subject matter. Welcome to God, Sex, and You, a daily discipleship podcast on healthy sexuality. Here's your host, Purity Pastor, Dustin Daniels. We started a new series on pornography addiction last week. It's titled The Sex Spiral, Forgiven and Free from Pornography. And this material is a preview from my brand new book. It'll be released this summer. Now, The Sex Spiral is a collection of the 12 triggers of pornography addiction. And we learned last week that these are not steps They are triggers. And yes, there's a huge difference between the two. And if you missed those shows last week, let me let me just point you back to shows 163 and 164 with trigger number one called awareness. But today we start with trigger number two. And this is a three part series which discusses our unhealthy thought life. It's it's our shame. It's the the negative things that we believe about ourselves that we actually tell ourselves that keep us inside this sex spiral. Now, most of the time, we don't even know that we're doing it. So in this podcast, we're going to learn three things. Number one, we're going to learn what shame is. Number two, what humiliation is. And number three, how this trigger, trigger number two, fuels the rest of the sex spiral. So let's get right to it. Here's today's lesson on unhealthy thoughts. Father, thank you for your words and that you answer the question, who will save us from ourselves? Tonight, as we engage in the, um, in the spiral itself, we, we move to trigger number two, and that is the, the shame story our unhealthy thought life. I pray, Lord God, that you reveal some amazing things to us as we go through this lesson. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So last week we talked about trigger number one. The the awareness is the very first thing that we should be aware of as we're learning this material. We learned that Potiphar's wife moved from looking at Joseph to seducing Joseph. We also learned about Joseph being conscious of his sin. We learned about how avoiding temptation is not enough. That we we have to have a plan, right? We've got to have a plan for offense. And your plan is in that three-ring binder. That's your purity plan for the next 11 weeks. We also learned that sexual sin escalates. It turned to physical violence because misplaced passion often does asked a great question last week, and I need to apologize to you because I didn't really answer it. And I need to apologize to the rest of you because I just, the more I was talking, the more I think I confused everybody. What's the difference between a trigger and temptation? Because I feel like I just, I don't even think about trigger number one or two, what we're going to talk about tonight. You just go right into temptation, right? And so I knew that I didn't explain that well. 
So I created this sheet here, that, which I hope makes it a lot more clear. If you guys want to pull that out. I've been praying on how to explain this. They're very, very similar. The trigger, and now keep in mind, if you, if you guys flip to the very first page of your binders there, you're going to see each one of those triggers. There's 12 of them. The trigger is the point of decision. That's the decision of what you're going to do. It's the point of decision where we either move deeper into the spiral or we instead choose to trust God and others by confession or fleeing. The trigger itself creates an emotional response. Temptation, on the other hand, is a desire that fuels someone to sin. It's being put to the test in order to discover the nature of the person. So the temptation, what specifically am I being tempted to do? What sinful activity am I looking forward to engage in? So under the decision column, or the trigger column, are the decisions, or all the triggers that we may run into, right? An attractive person, magazine cover, a random thought, song on the radio. And, and some of these guys, can, they can overlap, right? Like number eight, good day, bad day. You could be having a, a, a bad day, going to the grocery store, staring at Cosmo, and all of a sudden you got a couple different triggers working, right? So once again, the, it's decision time there. That's what a trigger does. It's, remember, it's, it's when someone pulls the trigger on a gun, where is your gun pointed? So you have to make a decision. The temptation is the desire that fuels that. Temptation is what I'm getting ready to do because of the trigger, because of the awareness. Am I going to go look at porn? Am I going to go masturbate, fantasize, go to a bar? Does that make more sense? The trigger is the decision, that you make a decision. The temptation is your actual desire to go and commit the sin. Regardless, whenever you're aware of something is when we have to make a decision to do something different. Because no decision at all is a decision to go further into the spiral right? When you do not make a phone call or when you do not flee, you're making the decision to eventually act out. The trigger is the moment that you see an attractive person. She has your attention. He has your attention. Somebody's got your attention and you're aware of how vulnerable you are at that moment. Okay, so trigger number two on your outline. We're going to fill out the outline um, fairly quickly here and then we're going to go back into it. Trigger number two is this, this idea of an unhealthy thought life. This is what we call shame. So or, um, key point number one on your outline, shame is a painful emotion that oozes humiliation and disgrace. Shame is a painful emotion that oozes humiliation and disgrace. Key point number two, humiliation is something that causes emotional pain and guilt is usually something that very few people know about. And here's one of the most important things about this trigger is that this trigger is mostly subconscious. We rarely hear ourselves say certain things. Dr. Patrick Carnes, the founder of the term sex addiction, he came up with four beliefs are you guys familiar with Dr. Carnes? Heard the name? No? He's the founder of, of the field, so to speak. And he came up with four belief statements. These are what, and, and believe it or not, 
Patrick Carnes is not a believer. Mark Laser studied under Patrick Carnes. So we call these lies. He calls them for belief statements. These are actually lies. Number one is I'm basically a bad and unworthy person. I'm basically bad and an unworthy person. Number two, no one will love me as I am. Number three, my needs are never going to be met if I depend on others. My needs are never going to be met if I depend on others. And number four, sex is my most important need. So here's the thing as an ex-sex addict. I don't ever remember consciously telling myself any of these four things. So let's go over them individually so you guys can learn from my mistakes. Number one, I'm basically a bad and unworthy person. If you would have suggested this to me, I probably would have been deeply offended, number one, and told you to go get wet. What are you talking about? I'm a, I'm a pretty good guy, right? I'm not perfect, but, you know, who is? The problem with my answer is that my behavior told a very different story. Although I was blind to it at the time, my actions were not that of a person who was a pretty good guy. Um, I wasn't worthy to be trusted at any level as well. My behavior proved without a shadow of a doubt that I was indeed an unworthy person striving for success. I was always yearning for my boss to tell me that I did a good job. Or I was seeking to impress a woman on the first date. Essentially, I handed over my, my worthiness and my self-identity to other people. And when I didn't live up to their expectations... Man, it just crushed me, and it just threw me into the spiral over and over and over again. Yes, indeed, trying to live up to other people's expectations will certainly keep you trapped in the sex spiral. Why? Well, because it's impossible. It's just impossible to live up to other people's expectations. I mean, even if those other people are the very people that you love the most. I've learned that unmet expectations cause a tremendous amount of, of frustration in relationships and, and the way that uh, to really cut this tension out in our life is to talk and it's to communicate with other people. And if you keep it bottled up like I did, man, your frustration, it just will light a fuse to anger and that's when things really get ugly. We will continue our discussion on the four belief statements that Dr. Patrick Carnes founded. We've covered the first one, which is I'm, I'm a bad and unworthy person. Keep in mind, this is a, a false belief statement. You're not a bad, unworthy person. You are a child of Almighty God. We're going to cover the other three false belief statements. They are, no one's going to love me as I am. My needs are never going to be met if I have to depend on other people. And then finally, sex is my most important need. And once again, these are false belief statements. I like to call them lies. And it really is so easy to lie to ourselves, isn't it? I mean, it's so easy to tell ourselves over and over and over again that we're not going to look at porn. And that we, we may really truly mean that and believe it and we want to, but the reality is that we don't have the strength or the discipline or the tenacity, especially for the first 
you know, three to five years of, of entering into this purity journey. We may not be looking for porn, but it's certainly looking for us. You know, we talked about that a couple of days ago. And this is just another reason I believe it's so important to protect all of our devices with Covenant Eyes internet filtering software. I've been using it for years. And when I see that little eyeball on the top of my toolbar, I know it's there to protect me from me. You know what I mean? It's it's there to protect my family from my own stupidity when I have a moment of weakness. Well, thank you so much for listening. I'm your host, Dustin Daniels. And if you're in Phoenix, I want to invite you to our weekly community group. It's for men and women, husbands and wives, single, separated, divorced, doesn't matter. Everyone is welcome. And you're invited to listen to God with us every Tuesday night, starting at 7 p.m. at Northern Hills Community Church. You can follow me on Twitter at Purity Pastor. Rate the show on iTunes. I would love for you to do that. And if you've got a question, I would love to respond to your question. Just uh, visit DustinDanielsRadio.com. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 4.20, The kingdom of God isn't just a lot of talk. It's living in God's power. And that's my prayer for you to live in his power today, the very power that is in his name and the shed blood of Jesus Christ.
are now listening to Unity in Christ, the English hour in our broadcast program. Download the app for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries, available on Play Store and App Store. You can now listen to this week's or past week's programs on your Androids or iPhones. Just search for Heart and Soul to find it in the store. If you have any questions, please call us at 602-866-8999 or heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. That's H-E-A-R-T-A-N-D-S-E-O-U-L dot org at gmail.com. Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is, Does God Care About Our Words and Deeds? Based on Isaiah chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua. Well, it seems like whenever you look at our culture today, maturity isn't just a lost art, it's a lost value. It's not something that we really see as being important anymore. See, this morning we're going to be looking at the loss of spiritual maturity. And what we're going to find in God's Word is that when we're thinking about what it means to be a mature believer, as opposed to an immature person, spiritually, we'll find that spiritual maturity is not an insignificant issue. In fact, what God is going to say in our word is that it's not a lot of fun, it's actually dangerous. We're back in our Looking at Jesus series in Isaiah 3, 1 to 4, 1. And this morning what we're going to see is God showing us through his word the reality that pride, that we talked about last week, right? Pride, that worst kind of humility, the the kind of humility that is actually humiliation where we become less than what God made us to be because we see him as not being sovereign in our lives we see our own appetites as what dictate what we are when that happens we humiliate ourselves and what he says this morning what he's going to show us is is that God has created us as utterly dependent creatures designed to worship God and image him to others that's what God has made us for But what we're going to see specifically this morning is that that pride that can infect all of us can also shape leadership that shapes communities. So this morning we're going to see that proud leaders create proud followers who become proud communities. We're going to see that in our text. I'm not sure exactly when this text took place. There are a lot of different arguments as to when it might be taking place. But I'm guessing that this is anticipating the coming Babylon captivity in 586. Isaiah would not see that day, even though he saw that day. In other words, he did not live to see this captivity that he anticipated that would come a hundred years after his death. But our big idea this morning is this. Immature leadership makes us long for Jesus. Immature leadership makes us long for Jesus. I think that's what this text would have us as New Testament believers understand here as we look at it. Here's the first thing that we're going to find in verses 1 to 12. This is our longest point. And here what we're going to find is an autopsy of immature leadership. What it looks like. What are characteristics of immature leadership. So catch this, just to get you ready for the verses we're about to look at. 
It's helpful to know that God is a God who makes covenants with his people. And God has made covenants historically with a number of people. And one of those covenants that God made was with King David. And and you remember in 2 Samuel 7 that God promised that he would establish the throne of his son, of a child that would come for him forever. And so that was a promise that God made to David. Now, we are fast-forwarding a couple hundred years here, and what we're finding is is that the, the reign of Judah is in peril, right? Assyria's coming from the north, Babylon's coming, and we are seeing that this promise seems to be in danger. But that promise that he made to him, that covenant, it came with some expectations, right? Covenants typically come with expectations. I'm making a promise, a relationship with you, and if you keep my covenant, you're into the deal, then blessings will come to you. You will be fruitful and multiply. But if you do not keep the covenant, then you should expect curses. There will be discipline that comes upon you. And so that's exactly what we find God having told his people. But as we look here in our text in these first five verses, what you find is a picture of those curses where it looks like creation is coming undone. And in this, we see four characteristics in verses 1 to 12 of immature leadership as this creation is coming undone. So first, notice that immature leadership is a curse in verses 1 to 5. So beginning in chapter 3, let's look at those verses again. It says, For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and Judah support and supply, all support of bread and all support of water, the mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of fifty and the man of rank, the counselor and the skillful magicians, the expert in charms, and I will make the boys their princes and infants shall rule over them. And the people will oppress one another, everyone his fellow and everyone his neighbor. The youth will be insolent to the elder and the despised and the despised to the honorable. Now you'll notice here that these verses, they begin in verse 3, describing God as Lord. Now I've told you before that Lord, when it has capital L and then lowercase o-r-d, it actually is translating Adonai, that name for God that, that speaks of his sovereignty. And so he's described here, right out of the gate, as the sovereign God, the powerful sovereign God, who is the host of heavenly armies. He leads the host of heavenly armies. And so here we find that this sovereign one of heavenly armies, whose power not only ordains the end of history, but also exerts his providential reign over our daily lives for his glory and our good. You see the sovereignty, it's not just a big level kind of sovereignty, but it's also a kind of daily effective sovereignty over us. And here the sovereign heavenly armies have set siege on Judah. They've cut off support and supply. That's everything that supports life and order. It's been cut off. Everything from the bare essentials of bread and water in verse 1 to the social order with all of its ranks that are listed in verses 2 to 3 are unraveling. And God removes their armies and their leaders and their counselors. And you notice they've already turned to magicians, so they're looking to other folks who are not God's testimony givers who bear his word. They're looking to other sources already. And God says, I am letting those things unravel before you so that you don't have anywhere to turn to know where to go. And don't miss verse 4, which I believe really drives this text. He says, I will make boys their princes and infants shall rule over them. God 
gives leadership to infants. Now, do you see how upside down this looks? Babies and children make decisions for the adults, right? But here it's the decisions that are dictating the people of God and their nation and the directions they go. They are being led by children and babies. Now catch this. The the word behind infants here gives us a picture of what they mean by this description. See, if you look at the Hebrew word behind infant, it's actually a word that means immature or capricious. It means to treat others maliciously for selfish gain. And here's what that means. God will judge his people by giving them leaders who are self-centered, not God-centered. And who are out for themselves and not others. And verse 5 tells us that their followers, the followers of their leaders, actually reflect their leadership because they are oppressing one another and disrespecting elders and honorable men. Now, brothers and sisters, don't miss this. Immature leadership. Immature leadership isn't a blessing, it's a curse. Immature leadership, it's not a blessing, it's a curse. That's true both in society in general and in the church. Just think about this. How many of you have ever experienced a presidential cycle where you thought to yourself, man, I feel like I'm trying to figure out how to vote between like the lesser of two evils, right? And you're like, which one's less? And then somewhere in your heart, you just think to yourself, man, we deserve better, right? Let me ask you just for a second to to ponder this reality. What if the options that we have available to us are really because they're exactly the leadership that we deserve? Because our nation has not turned to God, has not been faithful, has been sinful, has reveled in our sin. I mean, it could just be that we are so angry about the leadership options that we have, and we don't recognize that they're actually better than what we deserve. And if not for the grace of God, we would fully get the kind of leadership that we've earned. We see the same thing in the church, don't we? I mean, how many of you have had your hearts broken by a brother or sister who are leading in ministry and they have fallen to sin? Either they've they fall into some sexual sin or they fall into some uh, doctrinal sin where you're thinking to yourself, what has happened? Like, how has this happened to us? I mean, you've seen some kind of epic leadership fall, and you're just thinking to yourself, what the world is going on? Catch this, immature leadership will beat and eat the sheep God called them to feed and protect. That's what immature leadership does. You know, I've had membership meetings this week with folks joining our church who want godly leadership, and they've had testimonies of ways that leadership in the past have abused them, and I pray that that's never the case here. We want godly leadership, godly leadership that seeks the good of others, leadership that doesn't abuse others because of self-centered interest. They're not leading out of uh, satisfaction or seeking of satisfaction to fill their own selfish appetites for power and lust and money or fame and are willing to hurt others to get it. That's not the kind of leadership that is godly leadership. If you've experienced that and that causes you to be scared of Christian leadership because you've had some kind of bad experience in the past, please don't give up on leadership because you've experienced bad leadership. But what does mature leadership look like? What does godly leadership look like? Well, let me just say this. Right out of the gate, we need to know that Jesus is the gold standard 
for leadership, isn't he? Isn't he the model for us of what it looks like to be a leader according to God? He's the one that reflects the kind of leadership that reflects God's glory. And he is the good shepherd. Now, you might not recognize this, but in the Bible, oftentimes kings were described as being like shepherds. Because shepherds really reflected the kind of care that was expected of a good king. And Jesus, he was the good shepherd. He was the great shepherd. He didn't come to eat his sheep, but to feed them. And he didn't come to take the life of the sheep, but to lay his life down for the sheep so that they could have a more abundant life. In other words, godly leadership in the home and in the church takes an unflinching confidence in God's word, obeying it even when it's hard and costly to the point of the cross. That's leadership 101 from Jesus. See, godly leadership displays the Galatians 5, 22 to 23 fruits of the spirit, like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And all of that, hear me, in increasing degrees because mature people need to mature too from one degree of glory to the next. See, biblical maturity has to do with how we relate to God and others. And here's our problem. Churches look to non-Christians to tell them how to worship the ancient of days. Like, is that mature? Parents ask their teenagers where they should go to church. Like, I'll go to church wherever you want to go, honey. You've got parents who are saying, you know what? I would love to get the meat of the word, but I really need to take my kids somewhere they'll go. Like, is that godly leadership, helpful leadership? Is that infants telling parents what they ought to do? And we celebrate church plants with all young people, all young people and no older wise believers like it's victory. It's not victory when we don't have older mature Christians who are setting examples for younger mature Christians. That's not victory. You know, don't get me wrong. I love people. I love young people. I used to be one. You know, youth fleets, it's fleeing. It it goes away quickly. But if we are allowing immaturity to lead the people of God, this is dangerous spiritually and it has, catch me, eternal ramifications. Let me ask you, do you assume that every spiritual appetite in an immature person is good? Like, boy, if they would just get excited about anything, like, spiritual, I don't care if it's healthy or not, if there's just some kind of pulse, I would be so happy. Do you assume that there is a lack, that where there's a lack of spiritual appetite, a lack of spiritual appetite for, for the singing of songs to a heavenly father and to his son and to the Holy Spirit, where there is a lack of appetite for the word, a lack of appetite for sermons, a lack of appetite for meeting amongst God people, must mean that the problem isn't with the person's appetite, but with the preaching and with the singing and with the community? Like, could it be that that person who is immature and maybe not even spiritually alive yet needs to be shown what true life is and needs to be shaped more than they need to shape? I think so often we're allowing immaturity to set the bar rather than saying we are going to be mature believers who have a future. Because catch this, if you let surveys of teens and non-Christians dictate how your church worships, you might win the day with young people, but you could lose a future arsenal of mature believers and disciples who are ready to lead God's people in coming generations. Let's not make sacrifices. And come in close. Self-centered leaders, don't miss this, Self-centered leaders create self-centered people, followers, who create self-centered communities or churches who bite and devour one another. We need to be about the business of making and raising up mature believers who create communities who are seeking the good of others. 
That's what God has called godly leadership to. God-centered communities love others best. But don't miss this. Don't miss this proud picture of leadership that we have continued in verse 6. Notice here's another thing that we learn about proud leadership, immature leadership. Here's what he says. He says that in this context, qualifications for leadership are low. Qualifications for leadership are low. Verse 6. Did you catch what they did to elect their leaders? Did you catch that? Verse 6. He says, for a man will take hold of his brother and the house of his father, saying, hey, you've got a cloak. You shall be our leader. And this heap of ruin shall be under your rule. That's exciting, right? So brother tells his brother, you have a cloak. Why don't you rule this heap of ruins? What a vision. What a vision. This would be very similar to someone looking for a pastor and is like, who's got a Bible? Me? Great. You're the pastor. And who's got a guitar? You? Great. You're the worship leader. That's exactly what's going on here. The qualifications for leadership, they are swift and thoughtless. There aren't very high standards. And brothers and sisters, let me just encourage you, catch this. Later today, we're going to be announcing a couple of new elders that we're going to be voting on in January. And as we do that, Lord willing, you're going to be voting on them. And these are men that we believe both understand and can teach God's word. Men who have demonstrated godly character even amidst adversity. Men who are already making disciples of Jesus amongst us. Disciples of Jesus, not themselves, right? Humble men who have a healthy understanding of the church and what it means to be a healthy church and leadership. Brothers and sisters, don't underestimate how important qualified leaders are and that you are getting to know these men and that as you vote on them, that you are voting knowing who you're voting for. See, the lower that we set the bar for our leaders, the more our community will drift towards self-centered immaturity. Let me just say this. Elders are really like pace setters in the body right? They're pace setters. And so if we have mature believers who are leading and leading our body, then you're going to find that the maturity of the body as a whole is is going to rise up. The pace is going to be set. And so we ought to seek leaders who are mature and godly to be pace setters for you and me. There's a third thing that we see here, though, about leadership. Notice in verse 7, that leadership is self-sufficient, not God-dependent. So how does this guy respond when his brother says, you got a cloak, you should leave this heap of ruins? Well, it says, it says in verse seven, in that day, he will speak out saying, I will not be a healer. In my house, there is neither bread nor cloak and you shall not make me a leader of the people. In other words, he says, I will not be a healer who will help this people recover from their great fall into sin. I'm not gonna help them. Now, why, why is it? That, that he doesn't want to do this or says he won't do this. Don't miss this. He says, because there is in my house neither bread nor cloak. Isn't he saying, the reason I can't help be a healer is because I don't have the resources in and of myself. Like, I don't have what it takes to do what you need. See, this is a guy who is an interesting man, but very common. Maybe many of us have seen. He is a man that was self-sufficient when times were really good, and he was self-sufficient when times were really bad. When things were really good, he was the winner, and when things were really bad, he was hopeless. So you'll notice that God sometimes, in his mercy, devastates the things that we love to give us something better. Himself. There's nothing better. But there are also times when you're like this guy, when everything goes away, and you all of a sudden say, I've got nothing to work with, and he is so blinded by his self-centeredness, that he can't see the infinite resources of God that ought to fuel his hope. That's why he's hopeless. 
See, he can't see him past himself and all the things that he's lost that he loves so much to see the God who first loved him, lost complete vision of him. Don't miss this. Leaders need a confident hopefulness that emerges from their God dependence. I'm not saying that to be a really good leader, you need to see nothing but unicorns and rainbows whenever there's a hurricane, right? Like that you don't see that things are bad. Good leaders mourn with those who mourn. They love them in that way. But leaders not only mourn with those who mourn, but they also have something more. They have a vision of who God is and a confidence in him. You know, I still remember when I first came to Trinity. Man, it's almost eight years ago now, if you can imagine. And I remember when I came, I met some amazing people, and I was really grateful for that. There were some amazing people here, and that got me kind of excited. But whenever I came, I didn't come thinking to myself, I've got all of the resources in myself to take care of whatever's going on here. Like, that was not the vision that I had. I was not thinking, and I was not under any kind of auspices, that I was like Aslan and the nephew's magician. Have you ever read that, The Magician's Nephew? Where Aslan kind of walks in, and as he walks in, creation, new creation springs up and everything gets beautiful. I didn't think I was that kind of leader. Time's really a difficult situation. I mean, uh, I remember when I first showed up, we noticed that like we had lost 100 to 50 people a year for like a decade, and they almost couldn't pay the checks the week that I showed up. Not only that, the nursery was absolutely empty, which was the reason they were looking for a new pastor. And I looked at all of those things, and there wasn't anything in me that was saying, like, I've got this. And here's what's fascinating. There were a lot of people that got really excited when I showed up, and I was thinking to myself, okay, what am I going to do? And so some guys would say, like, oh, you just need to retool. Like, if you come, you'll just need to retool. And here's a graph. And I'm sitting there thinking, retool? (laughs) Like, we need to retool. Like, retooling is going to save the people of God. Like, that's not what we need drove me. And I've maybe never told you, I haven't told many this, but all through that, the vision that I had was of Ezekiel 37, where the prophet Ezekiel goes and he finds this valley of dry bones. And he says, I want you to prophesy to them. And through his word, he speaks to the dry bones and they begin to raise up. And he says, now I want you to tell the sinews to come upon them and the flesh. And I want you to breathe into those bones. And he breathed into them and life came in. And he said, and what he saw before him was no longer dead bones, but an exceedingly great army. And that was the thing that got me excited about coming to Trinity Bible Church. Brothers and sisters, that is what God does. God gives his leaders a heart to see life where there is no breath. If you want to be a godly leader... And you are given towards melancholy and despair. Let me just encourage you with this. The gospel needs to become bigger in your life if you're going to lead the people of God. God can use people that struggle with discouragement and depression, but they need to see light where all there is is darkness. They don't need to go around saying, look, I see ruins everywhere. Did you see that ruin and that ruin? Did you see how hard that is and that and how ugly that is? And who would want this, (laughs) right? Aren't you glad that's not the way that Jesus dealt with us? Here's what I mean. Godly leaders trust that the unseen God can do more than they can see with their eyes. Godly leaders look to the bread of life when there's no bread in the pantry. Don't miss this. We need leaders who are thermostats and not thermometers. You know the difference between a thermostat and a thermometer, right? So like a a thermostat is different than a thermometer. A thermometer is something that just kind of tells you what the current state of affairs are. Like you are sick and it is hot. Doesn't do anything to change. But a thermometer is different than a thermostat because a thermostat is something that actually not only tells you what the state of affairs is, but it also gives you the ability to change and shape it in a new way, right? So like it's hot, 
I'm going to turn it down. I'm going to dial it down so it's colder, right? Not a bad idea, Mark. Let's get a little hot up here. We got a thermostat. You can turn it down. It controls the temperature. Good leaders are like thermostats, not thermometers. Look, it is not a spiritual gift for you to be able to see how broken the world is and how much of a sinner somebody else is. That is not a spiritual gift. Most people see that from a mile away. Here's what a spiritual gift is. To be able to see sinners and see God's grace and see how the two intersect and see how to bring one person from one point of glory to the next point of glory. It's being able to help someone see a new reality that's better than the current reality that they see. A thermometer is something that just tells you everything's horrible. A thermostat says, look, the temperature's bad, but we're going places, right? It's on 76. It might take a little while to get there, but things are going to be different. That's exactly the kind of leadership, the kind of godly leadership that God commends in the Bible. Here's the deal. We know where we're going. There is always hope. The future is incredibly bright. And if you're a leader of the people of God, then you've always got plenty of fuel for hope to give to the people of God. People of God need to see hope. You know, what I'm struck by is the way that God has been so gracious here in this body and changing the temperature of the room. And that's not just like by degrees. It's the Lord has done a work in our hearts. I don't want to oversell what God has done, but let's not undersell God's moving amongst us. Friends, I believe we're just on the beginning of what God's going to do. It is because God can do much more than what we can see with our eyes. These leaders, they that we are looking for, they are more concerned with the good of others and their own self-interest because it's the glory of Christ that propels them. Don't miss this. We need more elders and leaders like this at Trinity Bible Church. So maybe you're in the pew this morning and I I just need to ask you, do you have a cloak? Do you have a cloak? Will you put it on? Here's what I mean by that. Do you have the knowledge and the character and the discernment, the disposition, the understanding of what it is to be a healthy church to lead God's people? Not everyone does, not everyone will, but, but is that you? Could that be you? Why isn't that you? Wives, maybe you need to encourage your husband to do that. Maybe you haven't wanted your husband to do that. But maybe you need to encourage your husband to be that kind of man in the future and you need to plan for what that would look like for your husband to serve in that way. Please don't be too busy with other things to bless God's people with godly leadership because catch what happens in Judah when there is no godly leadership in verses 8 to 12. Immature leaders create communities that look more worldly than godly. That's what happens when leaders don't stand up. Notice the result of this lack of godly leadership is that God's people look worldly and it all began with the leadership. Verses 8 to 12, here's what he says. For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because of their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. For the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. Tell the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat of the fruit of their deeds. But woe to the wicked. It shall be ill with them. For what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. My people, infants are their oppressors, and women rule over them. So catch this. Self-centered leadership leads to God's people looking like Sodom, that horrible city that was judged by God. You'll remember where only Lot escaped with his two daughters, the place where they sought to rape two of the angels in the middle of the city. See, that's horrific hospitality. Some people say hospitality, what's being confronted in Sodom. That is a horrible event. And here, Judah looks just as blatant in their sins. 
Instead of an unflinching faith when confronting sin, they display an unflinching sinfulness before, catch this, the face of God. Verse 8 says, their words and works defy his glorious presence. In other words, they are not ashamed when the presence of God, they're sinning before him as his people. It's a horrible, outrageous kind of sinfulness. And God says, woe to the wicked. Now, woe, woe is a bad word. Woe is a word that describes passioned expression of grief or despair. And he says, you should be grieved. Why? Because here for Judah, uh, notice that God has turned against them for their sins. He is judging them because he is just. And notice in verse 12 that even amidst all of this, God calls them and refers to them as my people. Do you realize that when you lead the people of God, like these people listed in verse 12, the children and the women who, who were leading the people of God poorly, do you realize that when you lead the people of God, you are leading God's kids? And that's a, a heavy burden if you really start to feel the weight of that. That when you're leading, you're actually shepherding people who have the Holy Spirit, who have been called by God, adopted by Him as sons and daughters. I mean, that's a, a big, that's a big responsibility to care for God's kids. What, what an entrusted thing to be entrusted with the children of God. That should humble leaders as we seek to lead God's people like Jesus does as under-shepherds. But also, take note that children here are the oppressors and women rule over them in verse 12. And they've hidden the clear paths of life in God's Word. So in other words, these children are the oppressors, but the women are the ones who are ruling over them. Rule, a word for kingship, exercising authority over them. Now, here our leadership is complementarian, which means uh, I believe that God created man and woman with equal dignity, worth, and intelligence, and that God gave them different but complementary roles in the church and at home. I think that's true. But here, I think that's actually assumed That's assumed. The main point seems to lean more towards showing how the natural order has been turned on its head. Of course, the the woman ruling uh, really here really displays creation coming undone in the curse of Genesis 3. Uh, You might remember that after Adam and Eve sinned against God in Genesis 3, God cursed Eve. And he told her there, your desire, the curse is that your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now that word for desire, desiring for your husband, is actually a negative word in context. It's the same word that's used for sin's desire, the desire that sin has to rule over Cain in Genesis 4. So the point here is that the absence of godly men leading God's people, in that absence, women rise up both at home and in the church. Let me just ask you, where are the spiritually men leading God's people here in Judah? Well, they're absent. They're absent, leaving leadership to women and children. Don't miss this. When there is an absence of mature male leadership, it's a sign of God's judgment. But when God's people seek his face, God, I believe, will raise up godly male leadership. Now, young men, if you're here and you're just entering in your your journey with Christ, you're thinking to yourself, I haven't really charted my path. I just kind of am a a Christian by default, and I don't know exactly where I'm going in this, this thing that God's doing in my life, I just want to encourage you to think about this. You've really this morning got to decide which of two Peters you're going to follow. You can either follow Peter Pan, who never wanted to grow up, or you can follow the Apostle Peter, who laid down his life for Christ. 
Which one is it going to be? Everyone's life is dictated by which one of those they choose. And single ladies, let me just encourage you, as you're looking for a man, for a husband for the future, if God has called you to that, you should look up for grown-up men. Grown-up men who love Jesus, serve the church, and are gainfully employed. You need godly men. But don't settle for guys who still eat spiritually from the Gerber jar because they can't handle meat. You need mature men, godly men. Now let me ask you this. If the future of the church is in your hands, young Christians, what steps are you taking to mature? Are you taking initiative? I mean, who's discipling you? Are you just looking to learn from other people that like are your age, that are just like you? You know, whose greatest, you know, so far victory, not that the future isn't bright, but like so far, you know, they beat Halo and like that's it. Are you looking for godly men who have suffered well, who have loved their wives, who have gone to work, who have provided for families, who have showed up at church week after week with their families in tow, who have led spirits? Are you looking to, to follow those men? Like who's setting your pace? Like if you're not setting your pace high right now, you are always going to be walking and you will never jog. We need men who can run, men who can run spiritually. And it is never too soon to grow up. So are you growing in your knowledge of God's word? Or do you run from hard things because video games are more fun? Are you developing your character by watching grown men do grown-up things for their wives, for their jobs, for their churches? Are you learning from godly guys whose highest accomplishment is how far his flag football team got in the last tournament? Look, for men who model Christ, look for them. Men who model Christ, live like Christ, like showing his sacrificial love. And be available, be available to spend time with them. You're the one that's profiting. Study from men who have suffered well and loved Jesus and his people and are more for it. Because catch this, second, human leaders will give an account. You want to be a godly leader? Stop, start preparing now. Human leaders will give an account. Look at verses 13 to 15. What you see is Judah's immature leaders were so preoccupied with hoarding selfish gain and with their recent losses that they lost sight of the coming day when God himself would judge the living and the dead. Lost sight of it. Verse 13, the Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge peoples. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and the princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the spoil, the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people? By grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. See, verse 13 says that God will take his place to judge the nations. And then 14, catch this, verse 14, he says, and you, Judah, you leaders, you will be judged along with them. What a, a declaration by God. They probably assumed that they were fine. But here, God says he's going to judge the elders and princes of his people because they have devoured his vineyard. They have filled their houses with the property of the poor of their community. And God speaks of Israel often as his vineyard or garden. He sees this in a number of places. But God basically says that the leadership treated Israel like grapes that they crushed into wine and got drunk off of. But don't miss this. Even though it seemed like the leaders got away with abusing power, God promises he will judge the leaders someday. In fact, the New Testament speaks of a judgment that is also coming for the leaders, leaders who will have to give an account in the church. If you are a leader in the church, Hebrews 13, 17 is a verse that you should have on speed dial. That is a verse that, that really should wake you up many mornings. It's a verse where God speaks to leaders. Here's what it says. It says, 
obey your leaders and submit to them. That's speaking to the people. Four, here's why. They are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. An account to who? To God. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. I want to challenge you as well. I want to challenge you here because I believe there's there's a challenge that needs to, to be thought of as we think about these texts. And this is it. Don't give up on godly leadership just because there are bad leaders. I know some of you reject and push back leadership in the church and and in other ways because you have had bad leadership experiences in the past. And I want to encourage you, because of this text, not to give up on godly leadership just because there are bad leaders. I know that some of you have been hurt or abused by leadership in the home and at church and may have given up on joining churches because of it. But let me encourage you not to give up on seeking and submitting to godly leadership. I know that there are a number of bad wives and husbands out there, but we do not give up on the institution of marriage, right? Sometimes I'm the bad husband and and Carrie doesn't just give up on me, praise God. And we don't just give up on an institution because they're examples or times of failing. And God has given us leadership. Let me just give you a couple of things that you need to remember about leadership according to Jesus in the Bible. First, justice is coming for leadership abuse. So maybe you're thinking that you can't trust leadership because you have been sinned against and that will never be dealt with and you're hurt too badly. Hear me, justice is coming. If you've been abused by leadership, that leadership will one day have to come before God and give an account. We know that clearly. Romans 12, 9 says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So trust God. Trust God that he will deal with leadership that fails to meet the standard. Secondly, godly leadership is a command and a gift. You know, Hebrews 13, 17 commands that you obey your leaders and submit to them. So who is it in flesh and blood that you are submitting to, that you're committing yourself to, that will give an account for you? Who is giving an account for you on that day? Second, also, godly leadership is a gift. Ephesians 4, 11 says, God gave shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Don't reject God's gift. Accept God's leadership. But there's a final thing that we see quickly in this text. God's people will seek redemption to remove their shame. We see this in 3.16 to 4.1. We don't have time to read this text, but you'll notice that he's describing the daughters of Zion. Now this word, this phrase, daughters of Zion, is used in, in different ways. Sometimes it's many people, sometimes it's an individual. But here, I think he's describing Judah as a nation. And he's saying these daughters of Zion, this is a metaphor for them. And he talks about them as a woman who was so proud and confident in the way that she dressed, drew so much attention to herself, very confident and cocky in this, when all of a sudden we find that God says, a day comes, a day of war, and notice how she looks after the war, how women would have looked when they were devastated by another nation coming and ravaging their nation. And what we find is, is that her, her state of affairs changes drastically as you get down uh, to the end of that chapter and into chapter 4, verse 1. Now, you might wonder, when is it that this happened? This undoing of this woman of Judah. I think the Babylonian captivity in 586 B.C. was probably the first installment. But I believe you'll notice in 4.1 is you were left with these seven women of this nation looking for one husband, saying we don't need the food and the stuff, we just, we just need a new name to take away our shame. I believe that as we look at that, we see a picture of that in Ruth and Boaz, don't we? Where Ruth was redeemed by Boaz. They needed a redeemer and Boaz redeemed her and gave her a new name. 
They needed Jesus spiritually to redeem them out of sin and to give them a new name. Judah did. Of course, we know that Jesus is that redeemer who removes the shame. But take note, in Revelation 3, Jesus speaks to the church of Laodicea, whom God said was neither hot nor cold in their faith. Here's what he writes of them in Revelation 3, 17 to 19. He says, immature leadership makes us long for Jesus and that he is the bridegroom who will take away our shame. Here's what he says in Revelation 3, 17 to 19. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, exactly like the daughters of Zion were left, exposed and shameful. And then verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich in white garments, so that you may clothe yourselves, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And slay and salve to anoint your eyes so that he could heal them so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. You see it? Jesus is the one who comes to redeem his people, to take away their shame. That's true of all of those in Judah who had turned to Christ. And that's true of all of us. I don't know what it is that's causing you shame today. But Jesus has drawn near to give you a new name, a new identity. He is the good leader who has come to heal your wounds and to make you new. If you're a non-believer here and you haven't put your faith in this Christ, he changes everything. And I want to encourage you not to leave here without putting your faith in him. Talk to me before we leave. But Jesus is the good redeemer. He can redeem and cover the shame of those who have lived self-centered lives. Turn to him.
This concludes today's series of Unity in Christ. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.